Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone that's located in the United States and Canada. And if it's not the morning, to those who I'm speaking to around the world, shalom, peace. My name is Kennard. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God a biblical instructional program. Today we're going to talk about a topic that uh, I run into, um, I would say, more often than what, actually I wouldn't want to run into it at all, but I have, uh, for several years, I've taught the Bible, continue to teach the Bible, and I noticed um, occasionally, or probably more than occasionally, uh, people, they get a little knowledge, and all of a sudden they don't want to hear the same thing anymore. As I stated in the uh, description of the program, I've experienced people becoming bored because they're hearing the same scriptures being quoted to them uh, when they are being taught. However, these people don't get bored <laughs> when they eat the same food they like, uh, recite the same words that are a part of Jewish or church liturgy and listen to the same lyrics of their favorite music. And so we have to to ask this question. Why does God state the following if Bible study is only fascinating, if we are only learning something new? Uh, We'll start with Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. It says, Remember the former things of old. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. And so that one scripture is telling us to remember the former things of old. And how do we remember things? Well, we review things. That's how we remember things. But this is a direct commandment from the Creator Himself. Let me repeat it again. It says, Remember the former things of old. For I am Yah, or God, and there is none else like me. I am God, and there is none like me. There is none else. I am God. So he's commanding us to remember the things of old. So that's a direct commandment to go back and review the old things. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7 says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee thy elders, and they will tell thee. So this is a a very powerful scripture here. It's telling us if our father is still alive, uh, we should, and if he is knowledgeable about the Bible and 
and so forth. Or, you know, most fathers are, are knowledgeable about life itself because fathers have lived longer than sons. I say most because some fathers, uh, perhaps they are, you know, they have some issues with uh, being mentally sane or whatever. So that's the reason why I'm saying that most fathers, uh, they certainly teach their sons whether they are uh, experts in the Bible or not about life because they've lived longer than their sons and daughters. And so that's why he's telling uh, a wise person who will listen this admonition here, saying, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee thy elders. Now, I want to emphasize thy elders because the Bible plainly states that a assembly structure or church structure should be uh, composed of elders. And those elders should be knowledgeable enough to feed the flock. Let's go to First Peter. First Peter, chapter five, verse one. It says, "The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Messiah." So, Kepha or Peter is calling himself an elder. So the apostles were also elders, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And verse 2, the primary responsibility of an elder is to feed the flock of Yah, which is among you, taking the oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy liquor, but of a ready mind. Let me uh, read that in a more clearer translation than that. I'm going to use the uh, 1965 Bible and basic English version for verse 2 of First Peter. Keep watch over the flock of God which is in your care, using your authority, not as forced to do so, but gladly and not for unclean profit, but with a ready mind. Uh, I'm going to choose another translation here that is a little more Hebraic. Uh, verse 2, this is complete Jewish Bible version. Shepherd the flock of God that is in your care, exercising oversight, not out of constraint, but willingly as God wants and not out of desire for dishonest gain, but with enthusiasm. Now, how does an elder shepherd a flock? Well, let's turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. It states the following in the complete Jewish Bible version. I will give you shepherds after my own heart, and they will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So that's how an elder of Yah or a shepherd of Yah feeds. They feed the sheep who are people who aren't elders in the assembly with knowledge and understanding. And that is the primary responsibility of an elder or elders of an assembly, ladies and gentlemen. Now, in verse 3 of First Peter says, not as uh, let me read this in uh, the complete Jewish Bible, asking another version here for clarity's sake. Not as lords over God's heritage. That's um, in the 1965 Bible and basic English version. But making yourselves examples to the flock. And the King James Version says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. In verse 4, and this proves that there must be shepherds in an assembly because it says that when the chief shepherd shall appear... So if there is a chief shepherd, the chief shepherd, of course, is not a human being on this earth, but is Messiah. So 
So when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. And so we will receive crowns, which means we will be kings, uh, not like uh, God himself, but we will be little kings underneath him. So verse 4, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. And in verse 5, it says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, which is a problem in the assemblies today. Uh, we have a Jezebel spirit going around, and, and uh, we, we, the people of Yah throughout history has had a problem anyway submitting to Yah. So what makes you think they're going to submit <laughs> readily to a human being uh, that is a uh, messenger of Yah? Anyway, verse 5, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For Yah resists the proud and give grace to the humble. When it says, yes, an elder should submit, but just like your boss at work, uh, your boss should treat you with respect and, 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 and respect as a human being. That's how your boss submits to you, but you submit to your boss by doing what your boss tells you to do. All right? In verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of Yah, that he may exalt you in due time. All right, so what I'm uh, teaching you here is the fact that there must be some concentration in old knowledge, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible is several years old. <laughs> Thousands of years old. And so you're reading a text, a book that is one of the oldest books in the world. And so when you turn to that book and read it, you're reading old knowledge. Now, is that something to be frowned upon? Uh, Psalm 1, verse 1 to 2 states, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight, his delight is in the Torah, or law, it's translated law in the King James, but it means Torah in Hebrew, and it means instruction. His delight is in the instructions of the master, and in his instructions does he meditate Day and night, day and night, 24 hours a day or during a time when you're awake in the evening, you meditate on that Torah. The fear of the master is clean. This is in Psalm 19, verse 9 to 10. The fear of the master is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the master are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even money, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So we should desire the word of God more than our favorite football team, more than our favorite food, more than our favorite liturgy, Jewish liturgy or church liturgy, and more than our favorite music, and more than our wives or husbands, and more than our children, and more than anything, more than anything. In Psalm 119, verse 103, it says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And if his words aren't like that, you certainly need to work on your relationship and your enthusiasm about the words of God. I don't know about you, but when I read the words of God, I, I you know, I, it's the best thing I can do in my life is to read the word of God and also to pray to God. Pray to a being that is perfect, 
Pray to a being that can do anything and everything for you according to his will for your life. Uh, we, 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 we have a tendency, we all are guilty of this, to take him for granted, ladies and gentlemen, to take the master for granted, and we should not be doing that. And uh, we are, especially the Western nations, we're so blessed to have his words. Uh, we have so many Bible tools to help us understand his words, ladies and gentlemen. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, to expand on this Bible study. Matthew 13, verse 52. It states, or Yeshua states, in Matthew 13, verse 52, Then said he unto them, as Talmudim, or his disciples, or students, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed into the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And so a, a good Torah teacher, a good Torah teacher, is someone that teaches old things and new things. So to answer the question <laughs> of, the, of the Bible study, no, Bible study is not just consistent of things that are just new, ladies and gentlemen. It has to be a combination of both, new and old. And so I'm going to quote something from a good commentary that uh, my one of my colleagues, Torah teachers, uh, Tim Hegg, has written a commentary. He, he wrote a whole commentary, Hebraically, uh, explaining the text of Matthew. Uh, he has a commentary called... Um, uh, the Book of Matthew commentary, and I suggest you get it. There's some good material in it. And so I'm reading his commentary from Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. He states the following, The scribe in the first century Jewish community was a scholar teacher who had mastered the text of Torah, possible interpretations. Yes, Sirach, which is a book from the Apocrypha, is uh, not scripture, but uh, there are some things in Sirach that you can learn that will enhance the scriptures, help you better understand them. So, thus Sirach, in describing the scribe who devotes himself to the study of Torah, writes, and this is in Sirach chapter 39, verse 1 to 3, he seeks out the wisdom of all the ancients and is concerned with prophecy. This is talking about the Torah teacher or the scribe. He preserves the sayings of the famous and penetrates the subtleties of parables. He seeks out the hidden meanings of Proverbs and is at home with the obscurities of parables. Matthew, however, is not suggesting a hermeneutic that finds mystical hidden meanings in the text of the Scriptures, nor that extols importing new meaning into the sacred text to fit one's current circumstances. Rather, the scribe who has become a disciple or student of the kingdom of heaven is able, through a thorough understanding of the Scriptures, to make a proper and exegetically sound application. Exegetic, exegetic means uh, comparing scriptures by scriptures. Sound application of the text to new situations that arise. For Matthew and his contemporaries, uh, contemporaries of people that lived around the same time as another individual did, the appearance of Yeshua as the promised Messiah formed a central and all-important reality that in initiated the consummation of the kingdom the gathering of the Gentiles or the other 
uh, uh, human beings that are a part of Israel, the tribes of Israel, as an essential aspect of this consummation would present the need for new applications, new applications of the ancient truths. It's just new applications. It's not, oh, we just scratch away the Old Testament, throw it in the garbage can, and some people that don't know any better, they say, well, hey, uh, the new and the old, the new means the New Testament, the old means the Old Testament. No, that's not talking about it because at the time this was written, there was no New Testament. But anyway, Matthew's use of the scribe makes it clear that the title or office itself was not considered in a negative light. Only when the scribes failed to give the sacred text its proper place and in interpretation were they abusing the sacred task which they had been given. Those scribes who failed to see Yeshua as the promised Messiah spoken of in the Tanakh and who rather sought his demise had betrayed their duty to let the text of Scripture speak on its own terms. And that is using exegesis. All right? That's the proper way of doing Bible study and teaching the Bible. Thus, Matthew further defines the scribe as one who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. The verb, metatuthesis, um, is a passive particle um, and could mean one who has become a disciple or who has been discipled. The verb is found only two other times in Matthew. And this is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, and Matthew 28, verse 19. The uh, first reference refers to Joseph of Arimathea also become a disciple of Yeshua. Here, once again, the passive form of the verb is used. Only in Matthew 28, verse 19 is the active verb used by Matthew. So the passive use of the verb may well emphasize the necessity of a divine call which leads to discipleship. Thus, Yeshua calls his disciples to himself and separates them from the crowd before he delivers his teaching. Christian discipleship is not a response to Jesus' teaching, but is rather um, engendered by his call. Follow me. At the same time, the content of the discipleship is indicated by Matthew 28, verse 19, where the making of disciples is defined primarily as teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. In other words, discipleship means learning from Yeshua and acting upon what he has learned. To be discipled in this context means to be instructed in the truths of the kingdom of heaven. That is, to be one of those chosen to see the truths about the kingdom of Yah, truths that are hidden to others. Perhaps in these words, Matthew's giving us a description of how he viewed his own calling as one of the twelve. Now, let's emphasize the very important phrase or sentence, part of the sentence, structure, who brings out of his treasure things new and old. What is the metaphor being used here in Leviticus 26 verse? The blessing that comes upon Israel when they obey the Torah is described this way. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. That is, the abundant harvest of one season will last until the harvest of the next. The storehouse will have to be empty to make room for the new harvest. It may be then that the phrase implies an abundance of wisdom and truth which the discipled scribe will have to share with those he teaches. In the later rabbinic sources, old and new in the realm of teaching is used to describe commandments derived from the Torah and those derived from the sages, respectively. Song of Songs, uh, Song of Songs, this is in the scriptures, uh, Psalm, Song of Songs. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 13, reads, The, the mandrakes here given forth, fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. 
Notice that the old is not cast away. It's still part of the overall scheme of things. This is interpreted in Bethlehem. Uh, it says right here, said our Hizda to certain one of the rabbis who was laying out lore for him. Have you heard the meaning of the phrase, new and old, that I have laid up for you, O my beloved? That's in, in Song of Songs, uh, as we have just uh, analyzed there, Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 13. Verse 13. And so, continuing on with this uh, Jewish source here said our Hizda to a certain one of the rabbis who was laying out lore for him, Have you heard the meaning of the phrase, new and old, that I have laid up for you, O my beloved? He said to him, The former refers to the minor, and the latter to the major commandments. He said, So was the Torah given on several occasions. Rather, the one refers to teachings that derive from Torah, the other teachings that derive from the scribes. Likewise, in Tavu Yam 4.6, the idea that the scribes innovate new things seems to be stated as proverbial. Given the fact that it was apparently common to view the scribes as making new applications, halakha, of the established mitzvah commandments of the Torah, it is not unlikely that there, in our Matthew text, we see a foreshadowing of Yeshua's teaching in Matthew 16, verse 19, and 18, verse 18, namely, that his disciples or students would be given the keys of heaven so that they would so that what they bound on earth would be bound in heaven, and what they loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. That is, the application of the eternal truths of Scripture in terms of necessary halakha for the ecclesia, or the kahila of Yeshua, would come forth from the storehouse of Yeshua's disciples as they function in the capacity of Yeshua's apostles. Shalikim. The difference, however, between the apostles of Yeshua and the scribes associated with the Pharisees, as far as the gospel writers are concerned, is that the apostles are endowed with the Spirit of God, who leads them and instructs them in the making of halakha, so that the new things they bring forth from the storehouse are perfectly aligned with the ancient. And so we don't get rid of the ancient. We don't get tired of the ancient. Unchangeable. So they. So let me repeat this again. The new things they bring forth from the storehouse are perfectly aligned with the ancient, unchangeable truths of the Scriptures. In this way, the new and the old are never contradictory. They, they don't contradict each other. Nor does that which is new negate that which is old. Let me underscore that and repeat that. Nor does that which is new negate that which is old. The new simply extends the application of the old to new situations and circumstances, particularly those situations and circumstances that would arise due to the rapid influx of Gentiles into the believing community. The idea that old, I referred to this earlier, refers to the Old Testament, while new refers to the New Testament, is impossible, since the so-called New Testament did not yet exist in Matthew's day. The, the, the proper understanding of New Testament renewed covenant scriptures, or the apostolic, apostolic scriptures. Nor should the teachings of Yeshua be equated with the new as over against the teachings of Moja, which constituted the old. Yeshua has already made it clear in our gospel, uh, Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20, that his teaching aligned with that of Moja, even in regard to the smallest detail. When I say Moja, I'm, I'm saying Moses. Rightly, in, in Hebrew, rightly did the early church fathers appeal to this text to show the necessity and viability of the Old Testament for the Christian church. The order of the words, New and old should not surprise us, nor should be 
just be taken to emphasize the new over the old as having some kind of particular divine priority. New is often mentioned before old in the apostolic scriptures. Uh, here's a few scriptural references. Matthew 9, verse 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Hebrews 8, verse 14. And 1 John 2, verse 7. And you can always rewind this um, teaching and, and jot those scriptures down if I did it too fast for you. And it's mostly likely given in this order because the emphasis is upon the future growth of the kingdom of heaven, which will require that the disciples make new application of the established doctrines they have been taught from the ancient text of Scripture. So not new doctrine, but new, how do you apply it? How do I do this, like in the 21st century, for example? Or how do you do it in the 1st century? All right, so it should be pretty clear that a a true Torah teacher is going to teach not just new things, folks, but they will go back to the old things. And based on the commandment of God. And uh, that was a good commentary. That's the reason why I, I uh, took the time to read it to, to, to emphasize this point. It's an excellent commentary on this scripture. All right, so let's go back to quoting some other scriptures here. Uh, in light of, I have like 19 minutes left, so I have plenty of time. Second Peter 3, verse 18. Let's turn there. Second Peter 3, verse 18. Second Peter 3, verse 18. It states plainly, but we are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Master and the Savior, Yeshua Messiah. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. Now, the Bible plainly states that he is the Word of God in Revelation chapter 19. He is the literal Word of God. Let's turn there. Revelation chapter 19. And so, Messiah is the Word of God in person, but the Word of God in print. That's certainly also referring to the Messiah, ladies and gentlemen. So we must study the word of God to get to know him. Revelation 19, verse 13, it says, And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. So he is the word of God, ladies and gentlemen, and we must grow in that knowledge. So, yes, to grow in knowledge means you learn new things. And so you should learn new things, but you can't take away from the things that you already learned, because many times when I study, and, I, and here I am almost 50 years old, and I learn new things still from the old things, from the old things that I study. And so that's why it's important to go back and review the things that you already know, because if it's just like, I always give this example, I've been giving this example quite frequently about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan as far as I'm concerned, was the greatest basketball player who ever played the game. You know the reason why? It's because he practiced a jump shot, uh, a move, several times. And it was the same move, but he did it several times, and guess what? He got better at it. And when he got better at it, he did newer things because he got better at it. Okay, so that example should be applied to Bible study or anything you do in your life. If you want to get better at it, if you want to grow, then you continue to, to study what you already learned and master it. You always can improve. Yeshua was perfect and he, and he improved. There's nothing wrong with improving. The Bible commands that we always improve and do whatever it takes to be better at something. You can always be better at something. There's, there's no limit to what you can do and how good you can be 
with anything, including Bible study. All right, so, and then we had the admonition here. A scripture just popped in my mind here in Second uh, Timothy, Second Timothy chapter three, verse six. It says, "All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of Yah may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works." He, you're not going to grow in grace and knowledge by saying, I already know that. I already know that. Uh, for an example of that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 2. Now, as touching things offered into idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. It puffs up, folks. We've all been guilty of it. Puffeth up in the Greek means blowing up, to make proud and haughty. And so that's why we have to be careful. That's what happened to Solomon. He was the wisest man in the world, and what happened? He turned into a a male whore, basically. But he had all his knowledge, right? And so knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Uh, that word charity in the Greek means agape. That's the, the highest form of love. And what is love? First uh, John chapter 1, verse 6 says plainly that love is the keeping of, actually, Second John, Second John, I'm sorry, Second John, chapter one, verse six. It says, "And this is love that we walk after His commandments." So we have to walk in His commandments. That's what love is. And verse two, and if any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. And so we can't go around acting like we know it all. And Proverbs twenty six verse twelve says, "See that a man wise in his own conceit." There is more hope for a fool than of him. You know, and so we can't be wise in our own conceit. That word in the, in, in the Hebrew is ayen, and it means um, your own, your own uh, resemblance. And, and we, can't, we can't be that way. We can't be wise in our own resemblance, ladies and gentlemen. And then Proverbs 30, verse 2 to 4 states, Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. I need to learn wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. <laughs> you don't want to get to that point, ladies and gentlemen. You don't want to get to that point. And then Galatians 6, verse 3, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 to 7, this is a problem in the assemblies today, unfortunately. Now, the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Verse 6, 1 Timothy 1, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside from vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of Torah, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. See, so uh, there's quite a bit of that going around, unfortunately. And you have people that get a little knowledge, get puffed up, and then they know it all, and um, they want to be teachers. Nothing wrong with want to be teachers, but it takes years, folks, to to get to a point where you can teach in front of people. You know, so uh, it's not something that is, is done overnight. It's not something that's done overnight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, unfortunately, some people think it is, and it's not. So, um, and here, here's a warning here in First Timothy six verse three it says, if any man teach otherwise, and it's talking about teaching the correct doctrines of Yah, 
uh, and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our master, Yeshua Messiah, and to the doctrine which is according to, to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but dotting about questions and stripes of words. That's what you were talking about the other day. I was visiting an uh, assembly uh, about the, the sacred name movement, that you must pronounce God's name a certain way or else, or you're sinning. Uh, and see, when you, when you deal with stuff like this, it says when you're dealing with questions and strifes of words, where it comes envy and strife and railings and evil surmising and, and perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from which withdraw yourself. You know, so so we, we, we have to uh, be humble, ladies and gentlemen, and be willing to be retaught things. And, and even the Bible states, even God states in his word, the following. Um, in First Corinthians thirteen verse two, I'm, I got a. How much time do I have here? Um, if I'm going to go over, I will, and you have to listen to the rest of this in the archives because this is an important Bible. Well, all these are important, but First Corinthians chapter thirteen verse two states the following here. It says, "And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith or trust, so that I could remove mountains." and have not love. In other words, I don't keep the commandments and don't learn that the ultimate fulfillment of the commandments is to love my neighbor as, my, as, myself, as myself. I am nothing. And so what is knowledge going to do, ladies and gentlemen, if it's not properly applied? And that's what this is inferring. Uh, Acts 17, verse 15 to... I was going to read the whole thing. I don't know if I'm at time, but uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse uh, 15. It states, and they conducted Shaul, and they that conducted Shaul brought him into Athens. And this Athens is, is uh, any area of Greece. And we get a lot of Western thought today from Greece and Rome. And Western thought, to simplify it, is I have to know something new. I want to be entertained. And, and that's, unfortunately, a lot of Americans have that mindset. And that's the reason why it's very difficult for them to really appreciate the Bible. And receiving a commandment to Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, why Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, which idolatry can be rebellion, ladies and gentlemen, and rebellion is witchcraft. Verse 17, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Now, in verse 18, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? So they called Shaul a babbler, and the, and the Greek for babbler is a uh, lawfer, a seed picker, a sponger, <laughs> a gossiper. So they false accuse and say, and others, some, and others some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Yeshua and in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into Arab Pegas, saying, and that was simply a um, a rock of air, is a place in Athens. It's the name of a Greek deity of war, a Greek false god of war, saying, may we know what this new doctrine or teaching uh, is, whereas thou speakest. And verse 20, I want you to notice this. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean. Yeah, they want to know what they mean because they never heard of it before. And then verse 21, for all the 
at uh, the Athenians and strangers, um, those who are of Athens, of course, and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else. They spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And so that's all they spent. They just wanted to hear some new thing. And unfortunately, Americans have that problem. A lot of Americans are bored because they do the same thing all the time. And they they want excitement. They want something new. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you use that as a paradigm, a model for your entire life, that it has to be always something new, then your life will be quite boring for the rest of your life, ladies and gentlemen. You, You can't live your life like that. It always has to be something new. Uh, and then verse 22, Then Shaul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Too super, that, that word means more religious than others. Verse 23, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown, this is a prophecy, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship him declare I unto you. So people that have this attitude, I want to learn something new. Um, I don't want to hear, I don't want to, to go over what I've already learned. I just want to learn something new, new, new. Then what happens, you get this arrogant attitude and you'll get to the point where you don't know the true Yah. You'll lose the ability to know the, the true God because these people had an inscription. These people who all they wanted to do was learn something new. To the unknown God whom therefore you ignorantly worship. So do you understand what this means? It means that if you totally just want to know, learn something new all the time and don't want to review what you already know, then you're going to get to the point where you don't know the true God and you lose the ability to understand the scriptures and you're going to start ignorantly worshiping God. And so I hope you understand that. You can't get to that point. You have to always review the scriptures. The Jews understand this probably perfectly. Uh, they 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 do the Shema, and what does the Shema remind us to do, ladies and gentlemen? Let's turn there, the Shema. And I'm going to read the Shema. And if I get interrupted, I get interrupted. Uh, it's going to be in the archives, but uh, you can always review it. Deuteronomy chapter six verse four. It says here that means understand in Hebrew. Oh Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and that and word here means Shema. It means to listen, to hear. The Lord our Yah is one God, and thou shalt love the Master thy Yah with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee today shall be in thy heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto thy children. These are the same words, not something new. And shall talk of them when thou sit in thy house, and when thou walk by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Verse 8, and you shall bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. So he wants us to memorize. A lot of Jews in old times, and I'm probably in new times too, uh, they have memorized the entire Tanakh by memory. And how are you going to do that unless you review it constantly? Verse 9, and thou shalt write upon them the post of thy house and on thy gates, Verse 10, and it shall be when the master that Yah had brought thee into the land which he swore unto thy father, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. 
when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Here we go. Here's the problem that most people have in this world. When you have everything and all your needs are taken care of, this is what he's warning each and every one of us not to do. Then beware that you forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. That's what will happen, ladies and gentlemen, if we get a prideful attitude and we just feel that, God, we don't need you anymore because we have all we need. I have all the knowledge I need. I don't need you. I don't need to go back and remember the things of old. Forget what you said. I want to do what I want to do. And see, when you start to have that attitude, then bad things will happen to you. And Deuteronomy 11, verse 18, which is still a part of the Shema, they have three sections of it. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may, this is where we get the concept of tefillin from, that they may be as frontless between your eyes and you shall teach them to your children, speaking to them when thou sit down in thy house and when thou walk. And he's repeating this again. <laughs> By the way, when you lie down and when you rise up and thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thy house, you tell me he don't want us to remember his law and go over it and upon thy gates that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto his fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, uh, do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to cleave unto him, then will the master drive out all those nations from before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. So, and then in Numbers, Numbers, Chapter 15, Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 37. He states the following here. And the, and the master spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they may put upon the fringe of their borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the master. That's the reason why God tells us to remember because he knows that we will forget if we don't go over his, his law, we, if we don't go over his instructions over and over and over again. And he says here, and it shall be unto you for a friend that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the master and do them that you seek not after your own heart, after your own eyes, after which you are used to go and whoring, that you may remember and do my commandments. There's a, something we must do to continue to remember and do his commandments. We have to obey all his instructions, including the instruction for ZZ. Getting a four-color garment, doing the best you can with that. It says, verse 40, that you may remember and do all the commandments and be holy or set apart unto your Yah. And so that's important to understand, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to go off the air here uh, in a few minutes. Uh, I'm almost done, though, with uh, the Bible study, though. Um, Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 plainly states remember remember the Sabbath to keep it holy ladies and gentlemen so to summarize what we've learned today is nothing wrong with learning something new but it's not always about learning something new we have to go back and learn the old things too to get better insight to improve our understanding of the old and so Bible study true Bible study is a combination of learning something old and learning something new from the old and gleaning from that. Sure, we do from occasion get entirely new teachings, but where do we get them from? We get them from the old, ladies and gentlemen. And so with that, 
May God bless and keep you, and y'all willing, I'll be available to you for another Bible study next week. Shalom. Peace. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 